Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's interview will be with Hugo Cardoso. Hugo is a Creolist, and he does work in Sri Lanka and India. And if you don't know what a Creole is, the most basic explanation is a Creole is a stable natural language that has developed from a mixing of two or more other languages. And it differs from a pidgin. A pidgin is not considered a full language, but a creole, on the other hand, is learned as a first language, a native language by children, and is considered a completely formed language. So I'm going to read a bio for Hugo before we get to the interview. Hugo Cardoso is a researcher and professor at the University of Lisbon. He obtained his bachelor's from the University of Coimbra and his MPhil and PhD from the University of Amsterdam. He specializes in Portuguese-based creoles spoken in South Asia, which he has been researching for over a decade. He has worked closely with the Creole-speaking communities of Diu and Kerala in India, and more recently with the Portuguese burger community in eastern Sri Lanka. He is also a depositor at the Endangered Languages Archive and a recipient of the Endangered Languages Documentation Program grant. Thank you so much, Hugo, for joining us. Um, so to start, can you tell us a bit about where you conduct your linguistic fieldwork? Yes, sure. I mean, currently I'm, I'm doing fieldwork in Sri Lanka, more specifically Eastern Sri Lanka, um, on, um, on the Portuguese-based Creole that's spoken there. But um, this is the tail end of a whole process. So I, I started elsewhere. I started doing research in India, and I still do. Uh, so in India, I've done fieldwork in two places. One is called Diu. Uh, it's an island uh, off the coast of Gujarat in uh, western India. And um, and the other field site is actually, um, it's it's in the state of Kerala, which is the, the southwest of India, um, and specifically in two different towns, Kananur and Cochin. Uh, there is a particular variety of also of a, of a Portuguese-based Creole, which is spoken there in these two locations. So I've collected um, data in both of them. So I started in Diu, and then, you know, there were some developments, and I realized that there was work to be, to be done in Kerala, and I moved on to Kerala. Um, and Sri Lanka has been my latest edition. And how did you decide to start working uh, on those languages? Did you have some prior connection already to the communities or the field sites? Like, how did you pick mm -hmm. India and Sri Lanka? No, I mean, not at all. I don't have any uh, prior connection. It, 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 it all came from... An academic interest, which I developed when I was doing my um, undergraduate study in uh, the University of Coimbra in Portugal. And um, I had a professor there who, who was instrumental for this whole uh, development. Uh, his name was John Holm. He's a very well-known uh, creolist. And he was teaching at Coimbra at the time. Um, and he was also very interested in, you know, this was one of his objectives. And he kept saying it all the time, that one of the reasons why he moved to Portugal, I mean, he's an American, he was an American, and he moved to Portugal because he wanted to, you know, in a sense, create a new generation of Portuguese Creolists who could look at the Portuguese-based Creoles from a different perspective. And, you know, I was, I was one of them in the sense that he, he really inspired me to look at these languages. And then when the time came to do my master's, I went to the University of Amsterdam to work on a Creole. Now, a Portuguese-based Creole? Now, that's the interesting thing. Uh, so for my master's, I, I looked at a Creole, which is mostly English-based, 
but has a very important Portuguese connection, a mm. Portuguese lexical element, and that's, that was the topic of my MA. And this is uh, Saramacan, uh, which is a Creole spoken in Suriname. So f for that particular work, uh, no field work was uh, necessary. I, I did all my research from published data, uh, old dictionaries, modern dictionaries, etc. And then when the time came to decide to, to look for a topic for my PhD, I thought, okay, there's been a lot of uh, research done on Portuguese-based Creoles and, and uh, Creoles based on other European uh, sources, but they tend to concentrate on the Atlantic and uh, considerably less research has been done in Asia and the Pacific. So I thought, you know, why don't I move to that side of the world? And that's how it happened. So I spoke to Clancy Clements, who was a person who was doing at the time research on one of the varieties of Portuguese Creole in India. And I asked him, what do you suggest? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I came up with my uh, PhD project, which was the, the one about DU. And then everything else followed from there. I see. Great. We spoke a, a bit about this off the podcast, but can you mm -hmm. talk a bit about what was the reaction or did you have any difficulties in being a Portuguese person doing research on a Portuguese Creole in the post-colonial context? Was this a challenge that you faced? Um, and can you talk about that? Yes, sure. I mean, that's that's actually been one of the, for me, one of the most interesting things about uh, this whole process and the fact that I've worked in three different locations, because the constraints that that poses are not the same in all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has a lot to do with uh, recent history. Mm -hmm. So, as I told you, I started out with you. And DU is, um, is a particular case because DU, along with two other areas of India, Daman and Goa, were Portuguese colonies until 1961. So, you know, very that memory resilient. is still, yeah, it's still very, uh, it's still very present. Not only is it, is it still politically very present, you know, there are people there speaking Portuguese because they, that's how they were schooled in uh, primary school. And that creates a situation in which Portuguese, European Portuguese especially, but Portuguese in general, still uh, performs the function of uh, some sort of a normative, uh, of a norm. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, there's some pressure among the community from Portuguese. And so the, the ideas which are often associated with Creole languages, that they are uh, watered down or uh, corrupted forms of, of a standard, mm -hmm. still hold some currency there. Mm -hmm. And that was the source of my constraints when I was working in DU. It, it wasn't that I was, you know, unwelcome by any chance. Uh, on the contrary, I think I was very welcome because I was Portuguese. Mm -hmm. So that was not a problem at all. But in terms of uh, of getting the people to speak the Creole to me in an unconstrained way, mm -hmm. that was a process. Mm -hmm. So it took a while, you know, I had to to be there for a while. People had to gain familiarity with me and become comfortable before I, I could... I could start uh, getting good data for my for my research from some people I never could I mean with some people I, I could never bridge this um, this uh, ideological gap mm -hmm. so some people could never speak to me uh, freely the way they would speak uh, at home and the exception were the children of course because the children are a product of the of the the period which came after integration in India, so these things really don't apply. Mm -hmm. So with kids, I could actually uh, start getting the the raw data from the beginning, mm -hmm. and in fact, I learned a lot of my DU Creole from children oh, right. before I could actually start talking yeah. to um, 
adults. And they didn't have that same emotional hangover that maybe their grandparents had from remembering the recent history. That's right. Yeah. It's quite interesting as well because um, when I finally, you know, could establish some some uh, relationships with some families that allowed me to, to get this kind of data, it would not be uncommon, for example, if I was interviewing a child or perhaps uh, their, their mother or father, it wouldn't be uncommon if the grandparents were there mm. for them to intervene in the sense of that's that's not how you say it, but the you know they, they would always try to correct it to a form that was closer to Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So it's not that what I was getting was incorrect, but mm-hmm. from their perspective, it wasn't what I should be hearing. Yeah, that's so, interesting. Yeah, wow, there was that. And then um, in the other two locations, this doesn't apply because oh, okay. um, because they were. <laughs> Not so recently part of Portuguese Not at empire. All. Oh, okay. Not at all. So that connection is broken. Was broken in the 17th century. So okay. you know there have been centuries of development that don't depend in any way of you know education in Portuguese or uh, some recognition of Portuguese as the norm. Mm-hmm. So it was much easier in that sense to um, to start collecting data there. How did in the last two field sites or the last two communities? How do people feel about their their language, their Portuguese based Creole? Did they have a different language attitude towards it? They do. They do in comparison to the first community. I mean, yes, uh, certainly. I mean, so so there, there's these notions that what they speak is a corrupt form are not there. Often, what what develops among these communities, not only the ones in India and Sri Lanka, but elsewhere as well, is that is this idea that what they speak is some sort of crystallized 16th mm. century Portuguese, which, which it isn't, right? Mm. There's, there's been all sorts of transformations, so it's not. But it's a, it's a way of looking at it. Mm. And their attitude is very different in the sense that they don't have as much hesitation uh, speaking to someone who comes from Portugal and who is obviously you know, a native speaker of, of uh, a standard variety of Portuguese. But on the other hand, these are also languages which are disappearing. Mm-hmm. And um, to some extent, they, the communities are aware of that. In one of the cases, in fact, uh, the one of Kerala, I ended up contacting the, the last speaker. So the people I was, I, were recording, I was recording were the last ones. And I could only locate six speakers. So it's the very end of a process yeah. um, of shift and, and language death, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there are these feelings of nostalgia about mm-hmm. when the language was still vital among the community and among the families and how it's changed. In Sri Lanka, it's a little different because the community is a little larger as well. Mm-hmm. So um, each location is different in that sense. Yeah. Can you talk about any non-research related challenges that you faced while you were in the field, such as uh, some culture shock or <laughs> did you get sick at all? Did you have to overcome? <laughs> <laughs> well, you do get sick. Yeah. It's <laughs> part of the experience, right? <laughs> it is. There are these cyclical moments of, uh, you know, <laughs> health issues. Uh, but luckily, nothing too serious. Um, no. The only thing that was a little more serious uh, that I had to go through was uh, typhoid. Oh. But, um, but luckily, I had, done, I had done all the vaccinations and all that, so it wasn't a, a terribly uh, difficult case. That's a and, good tip uh, to get all the vaccinations. Yes, yes, do. Because, you know, as this particular case uh, taught me, even if uh, all of that doesn't prevent you from getting the diseases, it makes them much less serious. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's easier for you to, um, to overcome them. As for culture shock, I mean, 
yes, in some ways, but nothing too serious again, because, you know, I'd never been to India before I started this fieldwork um, there, right? So my first trip was for the fieldwork. And uh, my port of entry was Mumbai, which is um, a massive uh, metropolis. And it can be a little overwhelming, so right? Mm. I mean, there, there are things that you have to adapt to. Yeah, definitely. Um, but those things that you have to adapt to, in my experience, in India anyway, um, are mostly associated with metropolitan areas. Mm. You know, all, the, all of the confusion, hustle and the hustle. Yeah, right. But my field sites are very different. Mm. They're smaller, they're, um, they're very quiet. And in a way, because they were all in the past Portuguese colonies, there is, there is a certain familiarity to the community and also their way of living. So you immediately, I mean, I immediately felt very welcome there. Mm. Um, so that, that, that was not a problem at all. No, I can't think of anything that was particularly complicated. I know that a lot of people who do field work do so in conditions which are quite difficult, you know, um, in material terms, quite difficult mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, accommodation uh, or uh, electricity and things like that. Yeah. That was not the case for me because even though these were small places, they were urban places, mm-hmm. right? So there was running water, there was electricity, you know, with, with some gaps, but it was there. Uh, there was transportation, there was internet, you know, it's uh, it's not as challenging as yeah. all that. that's great. And do you have any data loss horror stories to share? Luckily, no. Oh, I've good. always been very careful. Oh, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I've always been very careful with that. I yeah. always make, um, you know, lots of copies yeah, <laughs> of my materials. There was a moment recently where, where I lost everything that I had in my, my computer. Mm-hmm. But luckily... You had backup. Um, so bits of it were not necessarily backed up in my main backup, and that was my concern. But uh, because all of the materials had been um, had also been copied by other team members, oh great, everything was recoverable. Wonderful, right? Yeah. Don't you feel that this is a wonderful time to be alive and to be doing field work before it was all analog <laughs> tapes, and now we can just you know so easily make digital copies. Yes, absolutely. Oh, what? It's great. <laughs> so there's no excuse to lose your uh, your materials. It's really true. It does happen, but it does. Uh, I haven't had any experiences yet, but I'm I'm hoping not to have any at all. <laughs> and lastly, or second to last, can you talk a bit about your equipment? So you are mm. now working in the field fairly regularly, and so you have equipment that is still on the market can you tell us what you use at least audio and video recorder right actually uh, there's also been a progression i've always carried to the field video uh, recorders and audio recorders but in the first two sites i couldn't rely on video a lot Mm -hmm. because of you know uh, sociolinguistic constraints and you know uh, it wasn't perhaps always acceptable to to video Mm -hmm. um that has changed in this uh, Sri Lankan project a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been remarkably easy to to work with video. So what I do, and, and I'll tell you a little bit about what I what I have right now, which is the Sri Lankan project uh, equipment. I work with two solid state recorders. Actually, I bring two. I use one of them mostly, which is um, a Zoom H6. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I have a backup. It's a it, it's um, it's very good, in mm-hmm. fact. So this is what I use. But then I also carry another one, which I had from from previous projects, which is a Marantz, uh, just in case something happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we work with two video cameras. 
and this is um, they're, they're Panasonic, so we, we okay. went with the same uh, video camera twice to mm -hmm. make sure that everything is compatible between mm -hmm. the two, and the quality of the of the recording is also comparable. Because the the reason why it's good for us to use two cameras is that this particular project, the Sri Lankan project, has a very important ethnomusicological component, mm -hmm. which focuses on music but also dance. Mm -hmm. So very often we have to use both cameras to get different angles, and then we we will combine uh, both of them if we if we feel like it, if it's important. So we have two video cameras, Panasonic's, and then lots of microphones uh, mm -hmm. for different occasions. So we have two cardioid microphones uh, that, that we attach to the Zoom H6. We have one very good uh, wireless uh, lapel microphone, a Sennheiser. Mm -hmm. And this has been one of my favorite pieces of equipment because, you know, being wireless, it, it, it gives the, um, the whole setting a lot of freedom. Mm -hmm. So it allows us to do very interesting things like walkabouts mm -hmm. or to have people demonstrate practical things uh, on camera, such as the work of a blacksmith or the work of a carpenter or cooking something in a way that is comfortable for mm -hmm. the uh, for the person who's doing it mm -hmm. right without all of the Not wires them, yeah, yeah doesn't bother them yeah so these walkabouts for example have been quite interesting and and because the reach is quite long you can actually uh, film from far away if, if that's mm -hmm. necessary and you can still hear perfectly so wow. i really really um, recommend them yeah i really like that yes. <laughs> Then we have a shotgun microphone, and we got a, a very good vocal microphone, a Rode NT2A. And this was, again, sp specifically because we have this ethnomusicological approach, and this is a very good microphone for song performances. Mm. So we also use it spe specifically in these um, contexts. And then, of course, everything that has to go with it, you know, cables, stands, mic uh, tripods, yeah. uh, all, all of that. Bits, yeah. <laughs> okay. And lastly, what advice would you give to someone who is about to go into the field for the first time? Okay. Mm. Well, um, fieldwork is, is, um, is a very good opportunity. I mean, in, in personal terms as well, is a very good opportunity. But there's there are some essential elements to make it work. And I think in my experience anyway, I think uh, flexibility and sensitivity are essential mm -hmm. because you'll be in a situation where the success of your of your project, mm -hmm. the success of what you intend to do, doesn't really depend on you that much or not only on you. It depends on the people around you. So you have to be able to engage quite deeply sometimes with very different uh, people and that's not only a necessity you know in practical terms uh, that you have to you know listen to what they wish to do or listen to what they don't want to do and and run with it but it's also i think a, a moral imperative this is mm -hmm. how you should approach yeah. Uh, yeah. your work there so so yeah flexibility for sure sensitivity at all levels political sensitivity you know you have to um, be careful about the topics that you raise or the topics that you're going to archive and and uh, publicize and then in practical terms if if this is the beginning of a long term project if you are for example preparing to submit uh, a proposal for uh, for uh, funding mm -hmm. i think it's a good idea to do a pilot trip first mm -hmm. and to contact the community and to and to make sure that the community are available and and open, um, and open to to it this i think is very important not that i've ever had any any such 
issues. I never had any problem like this. But when I started my fieldwork in DU, I did take a risk mm -hmm. because I set up the whole project before I, I'd even gone there. Yeah. So that risk creates a bit of anxiety. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if it doesn't work, then it could be a problem. So you should, uh, if possible, you should um, do a pilot trip first. Yeah, definitely. That's good advice. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much, Hugo. My I, pleasure. I really appreciate it so much for you taking time out of your schedule. Can you tell us where our listeners can learn more about the work that you are doing? For example, they can visit your data in ELAR, perhaps? Or mm -hmm. Right. So for this project on Sri Lanka, this is the, the materials are deposited in ELAR, mm -hmm. uh, Endangered Languages Archive. So if you go there and you search for documentation of Sri Lanka Portuguese, which is the official title of the project, then you will get to our collection. And um, to get access to the other materials that I've been producing in, in, from, from the other field sites, you can uh, search for me <laughs> on my uh, research center, which is the uh, Center for Linguistics of the University of Lisbon. Okay. So on their website, there are links to everything else. Great. And I will include those links in the show notes as well. Perfect. So thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple podcast review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.